in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, launching from here as we have last week. Exodus 6, 1 through 9 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his, his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from, the, from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. title of this sermon is what it means to be God's people. This is part two of what seems to be like four parts so far. This passage here, as I mentioned last week, this passage contains the entire theological message of Exodus. Most commentaries and theologians agree that if you can boil down the story, the message of Exodus, it is in these verses. The central message of Exodus ties together in the four biblical themes that are found in this passage. One is the knowledge of God. We looked at that last week, and today we're going to be looking at another critical, central biblical theme, that is the covenant people of God. The covenant people of God. As the weeks go on, we will look at deliverance from bondage and this promised land that is promised to God's people. But today, we're going to be focusing in on this theme of the covenant people of God. I understand that that's a loaded term, to be a covenant people. Now, I want you to be aware that today is not a history lesson though we will be looking at the details of the Israelites in history in their relation to God. But it's not going to be just a history lesson. 
Because after all, today we live as the covenant people of God. So we relate to God under the new covenant that's described in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8 through 10, and other Old Testament passages. So as we will look at Israel and their relationship to God, we're going to see how they relate to God and how we relate to God. There will be some differences, of course, but many similarities. So, where do we see this covenant relationship? This is all by way of introduction so far, by the way. So where do we see this covenant relationship? What does that look like? We see this personal covenantal relationship in the words of Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, where he says, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Those words are central to the covenant relationship between God and his people. We've already seen this theme, after all. In chapter 5, verse 1, we've already seen this alluded to, where God, through Moses and Aaron, speak to Pharaoh. Afterward, it says, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's what God says to Pharaoh. God says, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. That, that phrase, let my people go, is repeated in Exodus nine times by God to Pharaoh. And not only that, but th- that, those two words, my people, occurs 17 times in the book of Exodus. This is a central theme to Exodus and the Bible as well. God sees or saw Israel as his people, his own people. What does that mean? Well, that means that God's relationship with his people was the opposite of cold, sterile, distant relationship. It was opposite from a mere acquaintance with them. No, in these words we see that The relationship that God had with Israel was very personal, very warm. It was an intimate relationship. It was an involved relationship. It was the relationship of family. In fact, that's what God called Israel. He called Israel my son in Exodus 4.22. So there's this intimate, familial relationship between God and his people, Israel. Well, where did this all come from? Where, where did this relationship come from? It, did it just, did it come out of nowhere? Did it come by, you know, uh, them getting to know each other, God and Israel? Where did it come from? Well, God had this unbreakable connection with this family, the Israelites. And that connection with them was based on a promise, a pact. This is what the Bible calls a covenant. Covenant is a promise or a pact between two people. 
Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God entered into a covenant relationship with this man, Abraham. What was so special about that promise, that pact, that covenant that God made with this one man, Abraham? Well, in that promise, God promised, in that covenant, God promised a a land, a seed, and a blessing. Those are crucial for us to wrap our minds around as we think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we think about the grand story of redemption in all of history that's even being played out for us today in present day. Land, seed, and blessing was God's covenant, God's promise to Abraham. That promise, that covenant, gained the name of the Abrahamic covenant. You can hear the word, the name Abraham in there. So the Abrahamic covenant covenant. This covenant that God made with with this man was totally unconditional. It was one way. It was, I promise, I vow that I will do these things, that these things will become reality, the land, the seed, and the blessing, that, that you will have a land, Abraham, and that you will have a nation to live in that land. And that nation will be a blessed nation by me in their relationship to me as Yahweh. This promise of land, seed, and blessing was a no matter what kind of a promise. There was no, you know, if you do this and do that, then I'll bless you. Then I'll give you a land. No, as years went by, in fact, God repeated that same covenant to each generation from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. That's why you see those three names repeated because he's reminding God's people, he's reminding Israel, I made this promise and I reiterated that promise and I'm going to keep that promise of land, seed, and blessing. That covenant as I mentioned already, was unconditional. It was God's covenant. It was an established promise. And it was valid throughout all the generations of Israel, even to present day. Now that plays into history, where we see what's unfolding in Israel. God will keep his promise to his people. And we see that in in the pages of history. Any nation that opposes Israel as a people will fall. Any nation that defends Israel, God honors. It's because he made a promise. And we see that in the headlines today. And no matter what precarious situation that nation finds themselves in, God will keep his promise. But we see here in the book of Exodus, beginning with this generation of Moses, we see God now entering into fellowship with a nation of people. And that fellowship, 
that covenant that God entered into with this people was introduced by God through Moses. And it's what, what is called the Mosaic Covenant. So you have the Abrahamic Covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, and that is overarching, that is unconditional, that is eternal. But then with underneath that umbrella, you have this specific covenant that he made with his people called the Mosaic Covenant. It doesn't nullify the Abrahamic covenant, it doesn't replace it. it, doesn't replace that old promise. But it's this new, you could say, kind of system of relating to God. That's what the Mosaic covenant is. It's also called the Old Covenant. Not in the Bible, but in theology books and other places. It's called the Old Covenant. The Mosaic covenant is called the Old Covenant. And that's especially because today, the New Testament believer lives under the New Covenant. So if we, live what's un, if we live under what's called the New Covenant, then that must mean that the last one was old, right? That's where we get that terminology from. So what's this Old Covenant all about? What's this system of relating? Well, it's conditional. It's not like the Abrahamic covenant. It's not like that covenant, that promise that God made with Abraham. Exodus 19.5 says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. So you see, there's this if-then. With Abraham, there was no if-then. It was just, I promise these things. With Moses and with, with the Israelites in that generation, it was if then. If you hold up your side of the bargain, I'll hold up my side of the bargain. Exodus 24, 7. This is after God gives the Ten Commandments and some more laws for Israel to obey. It says, then Moses took the book of the covenant, which is also called the book of the law. He took the book of that covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So they enter into the covenant, you see, as a people. So this Mosaic covenant, this old covenant system was how God's people would relate to God. It is in relation to the law specifically. Now, this system of relating, this system of fellowship with God and Israel is centered around four things. Tabernacle, law, sacrifice, and priest. Tabernacle, law, sacrifice, and priest. We're going to talk a little bit more on these later, but I just want to step back. What's the relationship between the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, and our covenant with God, the new covenant that we have in Christ? What's the relationship between the law and the gospel? 
A lot of trees have given their lives to that subject. And I don't, uh, I don't presume to solve everything and, and mine every detail here in the next three hours that we have together. But similarities and differences, I think, is a helpful way to think about this. Similarities and differences. First of all, I want to briefly explain the similarities between the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer. Because if there's no similarity, then then what do we do with the Old Testament? Why do we read it, right? What good is the first two-thirds of the Bible, then, if there's no relationship, right? So I want to help you to understand how you can connect with those people and what was spoken to those people in order that you can rightly and more fully appreciate the truths of the Old Testament. Because there is much there to be, to be had for you today, New Testament believer. Okay, similarities. First of all, both Old Testament and New Testament believers are saved from the guilt of their sins by grace through faith in Christ. Now you might say, Jesus didn't come until after the Old Testament, right? That's what the whole New Testament is about, is describing the the event of Jesus coming and the cross. That's true. But what we see is in the Old Testament that men and women were counted righteous according to their faith. In Genesis chapter 6, Psalm 51 The only way that a man or a woman can be saved from the guilt of their sin is by the grace of God as they place your faith on Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So both Old and New Testament believers are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. They looked forward to Christ and believed upon this Messiah to come, and that coming Savior was, was anticipated even in the pages of Genesis, at the very beginning in Genesis 3. There was that promise made that this seed, this, this offspring would come and, and slaughter the devil and reverse his work of death and sin. So even from then, there was something and that the Old Testament believer could look at and anticipate for and believe upon. Even as far back as that, with the first two humans to ever live. Also, another similarity, both Old and New Testament believer obey God as a response to God's grace. Some might say, well, why is there a law? Well, the law was there for, or what was the old covenant about? Well, the old covenant was about uh, them obeying the law in order to gain God's favor. No, that's not what the old covenant was about. That's not why the law was there. It was quite the opposite. It was actually to show that you can't be righteous, that you can't earn God's favor. So, why believe, or excuse me, why obey? Why obey the law? Why obey God's word? Why obey the scriptures? It's in response to the grace of God. After all, in Exodus 20, 
In Exodus 20, it was, that was after the Exodus, after God actually fulfilled what we just read here in Exodus 6. After God actually fulfilled his promise to deliver his people out of the bondage of Egypt and bring them to himself, after that deliverance, then the law. There's a progression. It wasn't the law given, the Ten Commandments given, and then, I'll, then God says, okay, I'll stand back and let's see if you fulfill that, if you can obey enough, and then if you're good enough, then I'll save you out of Egypt. No, it's the opposite. I'll save you by grace, and then out of response to my grace, then you'll want to obey me. And that's the same with us. Exodus 20 and Romans 12 go hand in hand. I urge you by the mercies of God that the mercies of God would motivate you to obey Christ. It's the same thing. Also, both the Old Testament and the New Testament believer live in the reality of being God's people and having the Lord as their God. This central theme that we're looking at today. I will be your God, you will be my people. That is something that the Old Testament believer experienced and the New Testament believer experienced. Here in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, also for, for us today, Hebrews 8, verse 10, we both experience God is our God, and we both experiencing we both experience being God's people. So then what's the difference then? With all these similarities, what's the difference between us and them? What's the difference between the old and the new covenant? Well, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was a system of fellowship with God. The old covenant was how God's people practiced their relationship with God. The manner in which they communed with God centered around the tabernacle, the law, the sacrifices, and the priests. Let me, let me describe this to you and, and prove it to you from Scripture. The tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was where they enjoyed God's presence. Exodus 25, 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. See the relationship there. Why the tabernacle? It's for the relationship. It's for the fellowship. It's for the communion. So if you wanted, as an Old Testament believer, if you wanted to relate to God personally, the only place for that was at the tabernacle, at the temple. Though God is present everywhere all the time, his presence was physically manifested in that one location. Exodus 29, verse 46. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Why did he save them? So that he could be with them and they could be with him. If the Old Testament believer wanted to commune with God and enjoy that intended communion, they had to go to the tabernacle. How about the law? Well, the law was how God 
governed the Old Testament believer's life. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. It's a, it's a tutor. It's a teacher. It's a guardian. What does that mean? Well, every part of the Old Testament believer's life was touched by the law of God. And the law of God, as you read through, and we will go through this, uh, the second half of Exodus, much of Leviticus, as you look at the law of God, centered around the Ten Commandments, it was like a guardrail for the Old Testament believer so that they would not hinder their fellowship with God by sinning against him. Deuteronomy 4.1 says, Now Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform. Why? Why listen and obey God's word so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. See, it's conditional. If you want God to uphold his side of the promise in your lifetime, then you need to obey God. Also, the law was showed, the law was given to show everyone their need for a sacrifice to take away their guilt of sin. Romans 5:20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So why the law? Why the Ten Commandments and all those sundry laws that you read in the Bible? Was to show and magnify the sinfulness of man. And that leads us to the next aspect of the Old Covenant. The sacrifices. The sacrifices. And and all the, the detailed, minute instructions of what animal to kill, how to kill it, what to do with the body, what to do with the blood. All of those details were how God restored his fellowship with the Old Testament believer. Think about it. When they broke God's law, when an Old Testament believer broke God's law, if he was truly a believer in the true God, that Old Testament believer did not stop being God's people, right? And the sacrifice was not there to make them God's people again. No. If they were truly saved by grace through faith, anticipating the coming Christ, then that is their regeneration of heart, their uh, being God's people, was permanent. And so why the sacrifice? It's to get their, it, it is for them to restore that relationship with God because there was the guilt and the stench of their sin between them and God. And the only way to deal with the stench of the guilt of their sin was for it to be covered. And you see that language of covering all over the wording for the sacrifices and what was done in Leviticus, what was done in the tabernacle to cover their sin. Remember the golden calf incident? After and We'll get to this, but it's not for a while, in Exodus 32, uh, where Moses was on the mount, fellowshipping with God, getting the law of God, 
getting instructions for God's people, getting that Mosaic covenant. And then it says that after that, he came back down and he sees the people bowing down to some idol. They already broke the first commandment before even receiving it. And so the, the stench of their sin rises up, and here's, here is uh, Moses' response. On the next day, Exodus 32, verse 30, on the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So to restore that communion, with God, they had to sacrifice an animal for their sin. And that's what it means. That's what that word, that's an aspect of what that word atonement means. It means to cover the offense. The sacrifice was often called the atonement because its blood covered the altar. But that was to symbolize the, the fact that a death is the only thing, the, the payment of death is the only thing that can cover the offense. It's the only payment sufficient for sin is death. And so it was either the Israelite or the animal as they anticipated Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. But it really was to cover the offense of sin. Exodus 29:36. Each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. That's why there was the sacrifices. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it and consecrate it. It is not so that I will be your God and you will be my people. It is to cover the offense to restore the relationship. Same thing with the priests, last one. The priests were the people who carried out that sacrifice for the Old Testament believer. Leviticus 1 says, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. See that? That restored fellowship. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement. There's that word again. To make covering of the guilt on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord and then look, Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. See, the Israelite himself or herself couldn't do it. He needed somebody to take the blood and sprinkle it on the altar to make the covering for them, to make the payment for them. Because they were so sinful, so vile, that they couldn't approach God and make the payment. They needed somebody else to step in, take the payment, and deposit it as it were. To make the transaction. So as the Old Testament believer went to the temple with his sacrifice to pay for the breaking of the law, the priest would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the sinner. 
The Old Testament believer couldn't offer the sacrifice themselves. They were so impure that they couldn't do it. They needed the priest, and the priest was the mediator to make that payment, to reconcile them back with God. Also, the priests were the ones who would go near to God, who would actually fellowship and commune in the very presence of Yahweh in the tabernacle. They were the ones who could go in. Your average Israelite could not go in. The access was extremely, extremely limited. Exodus 19.22 also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. That's what describes the priests. The priests are the ones who come near to God. Not you. The priests in your place. So, why go through these things? It's to show this, that none of these things apply today for how we as New Testament believers experience our relationship with God. Let me say that again. None of those things, the tabernacle, the law, the sacrifices, the priests, none of those things apply when it comes to your relationship with your God today. Why? Because we do not live under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. Jesus Christ has established and inaugurated the new covenant. And so now, here's the differences. In the old covenant, we needed the tabernacle, right? But now, the enjoyment of our communion with God is not at a tabernacle, but in Christ. Here's where it gets good. And we have to go through that stuff. We have to go through the detail for this to be rich, right? We have to. Can't be lazy, Christian. It's a thing that plagues the American church. We're lazy. Physically, mentally. We're lazy. We don't want to do the hard work to know the truth, to know the doctrine, to know and appreciate the difference between them and us, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We don't care enough. And it's a tragedy in the church because we got shallow Christians. We got Christians that don't have anything to sing about. We got churches full of people that just mumble through the song. Because they don't appreciate the richness of the gospel. Can I get real? Okay, in the old covenant, we needed the tabernacle. But now the enjoyment of our communion with God is in Christ, the tabernacle. Jesus Christ lived among us as a walking tabernacle of God. That's what it says in John 1. He tabernacled. He dwelt among us. That's the word. So the very presence of God on earth in a man. No more tent, no more tabernacle, no more, no more temple. A man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. God in human flesh dwelling among us. Don't you see? Now we enjoy the presence of Christ as New Testament believers living in us even. And now we're called the tabernacle. We're called the temple of God. Your very body, Christian, is where God dwells. Not some location outside of you that you have to go to. He's with you. 
In the old covenant, we needed the law. But now, the practice of how we relate to God is not primarily through the law, Christian, but through Christ, the law of Christ. Doesn't mean, again, that the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore. But that's not, that's not my primary mode of relationship with God. Christ, Christ, not the law, is what rules our hearts and minds. Why? Because in the new covenant, he has written his law on our hearts and our minds. That's the promise of the new covenant. It's not this external law. It's a law on your heart. It's the changed heart and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. So, of course, right and wrong are still right and wrong. Good and evil are still good and evil. The, the standards of the Old Testament are the standards of the New Testament. That hasn't changed. We still don't have idols before God. We still don't murder. We still don't covet. But now, instead of the law as our guardrail from breaking fellowship with God, the love of Christ is what controls us in our daily life. In the Old Covenant, we needed the sacrifices. But now, when we do sin, and oh yes, we do sin, don't we? Even as people who are God's people, we still sin. When we sin against God, we no longer need to offer a sacrifice to restore fellowship with Him. Right? Like the Old Testament believer, our, our relationship is still, there is a hindrance in our communion with God when sin is present and unrepented. But now we no longer need to wait until we've made a sacrifice that's good enough. To restore that fellowship, Christian, we simply need to turn back to Him. Turn back to Christ. Because a sacrifice has already been made. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, died on the cross as the ultimate and the final sacrifice for all sin. And so since God has forgiven us in Christ already, there is no longer any need for offering for our sins, Hebrews says. You just need to turn back to Him. The Old Testament believer had to turn back to God and then go get an animal and make the payment. You just turn, and the payment was made. And so when you turn back to God, you'll see he's been there the whole time, waiting. In the old covenant, we needed the priests. But now, we no longer need to go to a priest to make a sacrifice in our place, do we, Christian? Because Christ himself is the great and the final high priest. And so as the ultimate priest, 
Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice we just looked at, himself. And so once he made that sacrifice to God, there was no more need for sacrifices. That's why it says he sat down at the right hand of God, because there's no more need for sacrifices. It's because his priestly sacrificial work was completed on your behalf. And now Christ is your perfect mediator. You go to Christ to be with God because he is God. There is one God and there is, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. You don't go to a priest. You don't go to a saint. You go to Jesus Christ himself. He is your mediator. You don't pray to, to mere men. Pray to Christ, Christian. You have full access. Don't, don't be deceived by these false religions that say you have to earn God's favor or you have to go to, to them to be with God. No, you just go to Christ yourself. You go to him. This means that your fellowship as God's people is unhindered and free. And we are to fully enjoy our relationship with God, church, with us as his people and him as our God. Now, that's all introduction. That's ridiculous. Briefly, live like you are God's people and live like God is your God. So we've seen the difference, right? But we've seen the similarities. So just as they are God's people and God is their God, so we are God's people and God is our God. But the relationship is much sweeter. It's much more free. It, the, the, the road has been paved. The door is open. The fellowship is complete. And so we can experience, we can live out being God's people and having God as our God. We can live out that fellowship fully. Not through a law, not through a temple, not through sacrifices, not through a priest, but with him himself. What does it mean when he says, I will take you for my people? In the gospel of Christ, what does it mean to be God's people? Well, a few things. You are my people means God has purchased us and bought us. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood you have been redeemed, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And in Revelation, that's what we're going to sing. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God, a people. That's what it means to be God's people. 
you are my people, means that we live under his ownership and his authority. God says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to purchase us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You're his now. You're not autonomous. You're not your own self. You're not your own man, your own woman. You are God's man. You are God's woman. We are God's church, God's people. And therefore, to be God's people means that we live under his care and provision and love. Exodus 15, 3, In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them with your holy hand. See, to be God's purchased people, to be the redeemed people of God, means to be led by him. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 419, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have God, or to be God's people. What does it mean to have God as yours? Christian, what does it mean for you practically that God is your God? Well, it means that he is for you and not against you. He is your God. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he'll be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also give with him freely all things? God, as your God, means, Christian, that you are already victorious today. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory he won the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he gives it to you. It's yours, Christian. The victory is yours. These things I have spoken to you so that in me, Christ says, you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I have already overcome the world. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. To have Christ as your God, to have God as your God, means that his victory is yours. I will be your God means, and this is most important, in him, the fact that you possess God, if I can even dare to say that kind of wording, the fact that we possess God as our God means that in him, being your possession, you already have everything you could ever need. Jeremiah 
My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why, would, why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. He says, don't go anywhere else. Don't go to the world. Don't go to that person, to that substance, to that screen. Don't go to that job. Don't go anywhere else. Don't go do your possessions. Come to me if you want fulfillment. Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. The presence of God, which is already with you, Christian, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What else do you need? Joy and pleasure. Isn't that what the world promises, but never delivers on? Why can't they deliver on it? Because only God has those resources. Only God has true joy and true pleasure. He has a monopoly on the market. God says, I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. And Jesus Christ fulfills it, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And Christ himself cries out, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He cries it out to you today, friend. Come to him. If it's for the first time or for the 500th time, come to him again. He is all that you need. We're not talking about physical bread and physical drink. We're talking about bread and drink for the soul. He nourishes the soul. He satisfies the soul. Church, the fact that we are God's people means that God has purchased us. We're His possession. And as His possession, we are under His care. And the fact that God is our God means that He's for us. And his victory is ours. We share in it. And we have everything we could ever need in him. Because you got him already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. For going to this world with shovel in hand, digging and digging and digging and making our, making our own wells, making our own cisterns, finding our own pleasure in the things of this world, where we have everything that we could ever need right there with you. 
And Lord, you take that personally. It is an evil thing in your sight. It is a sin to delight and find our spiritual soul satisfaction in anything else besides you. Forgive us, God. You have wedded yourself to us. You are our God. We are your people. And Lord, we thank you that that relationship is free and complete and final in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, it was a high cost. But Lord, now we can reap the benefits. Now we can enjoy you forevermore. God, I pray that you would stir the hearts of your people to be a kind of people who delight in you, that aren't distracted by the stuff of the world. And God, may we be a people that are full of joy because we've, we've, we've drunk in the pleasures of God. May our joy be full. Christ says, I've come to you so that your joy might be complete. Oh God, we have a full and complete joy in Christ. Not some partial portion, but the whole thing. Thank you. What else can we say? We thank you. We are a thankful people. May we show our thankfulness. May we show our, our gratitude and our worship, not, not only in the songs that we sing, but in the life that we live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.